You woke up to it. At least some of you did. It was rain and slushy. Some of you, though, it was like multiple inches. It was like a winter wonderland out there. Colleen, your yeah. neighborhood just got slammed in Absolutely. Edmonds. I feel like and we were looking at the outage yeah. map, right? And we and it looks like the storm just really took a direct hit across uh, parts of South Snohomish County, Edmonds, Linwood, and then yeah. over Redmond, into, yeah, Bothell. Redmond. Yep. And it was, I haven't seen heavy snow like this in a while. The flakes were heavy yeah. as they came down and you know 945 last night we saw started seeing branches come down transformers blow we've been out of power and uh, yeah just lots of Edmonds is a mess right now we live in the Montlake neighborhood of Seattle so just south of UW and we had about a skiff but it was like that really wet nasty yeah. awfulness and we lost power and I looked at the map most of North Capitol Hill Montlake Madison Park was out of power last night from about 8 o'clock until about 2 a.m. this morning and looking at the Puget Sound energy map 33 thousand customers mm-hmm. without power and it is in the areas you were talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. but sully you you didn't get it no and this is odd uh because normally where we are east of i-5 in that convergence yeah. zone mm-hmm. south uh, snohomish county we, we usually get yeah. about if everybody if you get like one or two inches in Edmonds, we usually get six and we got five and we got about an inch wow. maybe <laughs> Uh, not even just storm. barely enough to cover the driveway, yeah. uh, which I, I got up this morning dreading when I saw heard things from Edmonds when I was going to bed. And then I got up. And I'm like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. it must have. It was like the I, west of I-5 got it hit a lot harder mm-hmm. than east of I-5 until you get you know a little bit further over into Redmond and whatnot. So I was kind of surprised. Now, the neighborhood, because it's raining, mm-hmm. you know, is that just that? God awful, sloppy, <laughs> yeah. soupy. That's just uh, when you step into it, you're up to your ankle and yes. it's wet. You're yeah. like, oh man, now I got two soakers. But you know what are you going to do? Yeah, the I, past though is kind of a mess. Oh, yeah. yeah, in fact, they just closed I ninety at uh, at North Bend in the eastbound direction. Westbound, you can still get across with chains, uh, but there again, multiple spinouts, multiple things. A lot of that probably related to people not being prepared for going up and over the passes. So that's you true. Know, flops and shorts. I will say I was happy as I was leaving Edmonds this morning around like 4.45 that most of the drivers were being yeah. very, to the point where I was like, okay, come on, you can go a little bit. I got that, I got that way too. Yeah. Uh, the pre was like, really? 45? Because, like, and, and you agreed with me this morning, yeah. Travis, when, when you came into the newsroom, since we spent so much time in Spokane and you've spent time in Montana, I mean, we are snow driving experts, if I do say so myself. And you, like, yes, you have to take it easy, but you also can't stop yeah and you do have to go above 10 miles an hour or yeah. you're going to lose your traction and you're going to get stuck especially since Edmonds is that wet heavy slushy yeah. snow that you'll just spin your tie so yeah part of me was like can we go 15 <laughs> like yeah it's about continuous motion and yes. then controlling your continuous motion absolutely yeah I'm sure state patrol would just you know stop Colleen but yeah we were saying like you can't make a complete stop when it's still so right. snowy on the roads yeah In the nation's northwest corner is Washington, an evergreen playground blessed by an unusual variety of natural attractions. The towering mountains, the modern, friendly city. Seattle's Museum of History and Industry is celebrating 10 years at its Lake Union Park home. And to mark the occasion, they're looking back at the past decade of Seattle history. Our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, caught up with Mohai director Leonard Garfield for his thoughts about the most significant events about what the future may bring. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Felix, good morning. Good morning. You know, I worked at the old Mohai in Montlake for seven years. Yeah. And you said you live over yeah, in Montlake? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I went there a lot when I was a kid. So when they moved to the armory down at Lake Union Park ten years ago, 
Huge deal, big step forward for the institution and for the city. So they're holding a special event all day tomorrow for First Thursday with free admission and some special programs. I spoke to Leonard Garfield. He's been Mohai's director now for almost 25 years. I think that's some kind of record. Um, He'll be giving a presentation on Thursday at 5 p.m. called Seattle History in the Making, Landmark Events from the Past 10 Years. Now, interpretation of recent history is always tricky to pull off. It often takes years to really understand the long-term effects of something that just happened. Now, the pandemic and the social protests of just the past three years loom really large right now and probably will for a long time. I don't think that's a stretch. But those events and other recent challenges got Leonard thinking about Mohai's current main local history exhibit. And that dates to when the museum was new 10 years ago. That exhibit's called True Northwest. And the recent past has given some new perspective on how to tell a city's history in a museum, given what we've all been through lately. It perceives a through line that basically sees the city getting better, stronger, more diverse, more inclusive in, in a very positive way as you march through the chronology. And then it, begin, then it ends at, you know, 10 years ago. I, you know, I, I used to personally always think that history was a, a constant progress towards getting better, if you will, quote unquote. But I think the last 10 years reminds us that there are setbacks. And I think that, you know, just in a, in a sort of global way, the pandemic obviously was a huge setback. You know, and um, one of the, also one of the setbacks has been sort of this less coherent political structure in Seattle. You know, one of the places we've seen that have an effect is downtown, especially compared with, say, the 1990s. 30 years ago, we focused all on the reinvention of downtown. I think in the last 10 years, we've seen in some ways another reinvention of downtown, but not planned. And that would be the sort of hollowing out of the retail core, the um, increase in residences with the decline in businesses. And then the whole impact of the pandemic and remote work so that downtown now is really struggling to continue to be you know, the centerpiece of, um, of the region economically and culturally. So, I mean, this isn't exactly doom and gloom. And I've known Leonard for a long time. He's generally a pretty optimistic yeah. guy. But this is a little bit of a sobering yeah. approach. I mean, these last 10 years and especially the last couple of years have been really challenging. Now, much of the root of the change um, and the struggle has been Seattle's success in attracting people and businesses to come here. That's sort of the uh, the conundrum. And it's something that non-Indigenous founders have been wanting since 1851, right? We want people to come here and buy our stuff and you know build homes and things. But the scale and pace, says Leonard Garfield, it's been intense. And that has actually sort of changed the civic conversation in ways that nobody really expected. The dominant force of the last 10 years really was the influx of new people primarily to enter the tech economy and the growth of the companies in that economy to dominate the community conversation, if you will. Because of that, I think there was less of the kind of inclusive civic engagement that Seattle was famous for and you know pr- justifiably proud of over many many decades of you know new people coming in with new ideas culturally civically you know broad-based engagement in community life i think what we see is a community now that was very very hyper focused on business um that business was putting a huge imprint on not just seattle but the whole region and that became increasingly separated from the cultural infrastructure from the political infrastructure so that you actually ended up you know in recent years with a politics that was having one conversation and a business community that was having a completely different conversation you know that would be around things like the amazon tax or police reform in sort of the post george floyd era you know it used to be seattle would get criticized for the seattle process where we're all in this one big tent now there's like multiple tents yeah and not just tents that people are talking about anyway um, <laughs> yeah. now um, leonard says the seattle business community it's different now because of its more global focus it's even different than the Boeing era. He says in the past decade, Seattle became a center of gravity for global technology. 
But he's not really sure how many people outside of Seattle know or care that Microsoft, Starbucks, and Amazon are based here. And while those companies and many others from big tech have great impact here, good and bad, it's as if their focus is elsewhere. Their playpen is the world. It's not the community. And I wonder if um, that has created a sense where, um, you know, our most important products now and our most important uh, local institutions really aren't connected as closely to our day to day as they are to the global scene. And I'm just sensing that uh, that that has an impact when, you know, it's one thing when Starbucks has 17 stores and, you know, 15 of them are in Seattle. It's another thing when they have 17,000 stores and 15 of them are in Seattle. You know, it's it's a different different story. Okay, the last 10 years hasn't been all doom and gloom, right? Of course, we've had the, you know, the ongoing reinvention of the waterfront. That's a big deal for downtown. The, the, The rise of the Kraken, the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl rise of women's professional sports, continued leadership and philanthropy from those elder statesmen of tech like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. And looking ahead, Mohai Director Leonard Garfield does see encouraging signs for Seattle's future. We continue to be a place that both attracts and retains young people. And that energy, that creativity is what's really propelled Seattle for you know hundreds of years. And I think that's a trait that the city will continue to hold on to. And that's what's really going to shape our future. The one thing that's different for me is if you look like 20 years ago, the conversation would have been about grunge. Yeah. It would have been about the yeah. film community or the literary community. This notion of soft power of Seattle is this global brand, not a brand that you buy stuff yeah. from, but a brand that you are drawn toward because of its cultural power. I feel like that has really changed. Maybe I'm, I'm old and unhip. Well, of course, I've always been unhip. I know I'm old, <laughs> but maybe now I'm unhip as well. And I don't know about these cool things that are going on around the city, but it feels like we talk about business, we talk about the unhoused, we talk about these other challenges, but there isn't this sort of subculture that's rising up to dominate the world culturally with our soft power. That makes me kind of sad, I guess. It's hard to say that Microsoft, Amazon, and Starbucks are cool. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. amazing in their own ways, but cool is not how I would describe any one yeah, of those companies. So we're searching for cool, I guess, yeah. is the problem here. <laughs> I like it. All right. Felix Spinell, thank you very much. All of Felix's features on MyNorthwest.com. There are 61. The nays are 36. Uh, the bill, as amended, has passed. And with Dear that... President, what a great day. What a great day. And with that, the Senate passed a landmark bill to protect same-sex marriages. Let's go live to Washington, D.C. and CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. Uh, Scott, this bill really has been gaining momentum since that Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade in June. Yeah, there's, there's been a different set of bills passed in response to this Supreme Court decision and the concern that the Supreme Court may then move on same-sex marriage as well. The U.S. House passed one almost immediately. The Senate took a little more time, manicured a bill with a few more amendments, and passed theirs with the 61 votes needed last night. So this is on a trajectory towards becoming federal law. It's clearly a response to what the Supreme Court said deeper down in its opinion that overturned Roe versus Wade. I also am I'm looking at the Republicans in the Senate who joined not, some folks who not surprising, like Senator uh, Susan Collins from Maine, for example, but also a senator from Wyoming joining the, the Republicans here to push this across the finish line. There's overwhelming uh, popularity across America for codifying same sex marriage and certainly interracial marriage and the other elements to this bill. It's not that it's anything short of a political winner for those who support it. Um, but there still is that higher threshold in the U.S. Senate. You have to get over 60 votes. They got 61. It wasn't a landslide. Um, 
So there's still a bit of inertia on this issue that exists in the U.S. Senate, but it's overwhelming what happened in the U.S. House, and I expect this to be clearly headed to the president's desk in short order. Yeah, the clock is ticking, though. I mean, this lame duck session, is there enough time to get it to the House? And, 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 and I mean, obviously, they showed that they have the votes to pass something like this, but is there time to do it? Yeah, there is, but I tell you what, it is a traffic jam that's forming, so it's a good question. I mean, there's a, a bunch of big things that have to get done before December 31st. They, first of all, have to keep the government open, keep the lights on. There's a December 16th deadline to avert a government shutdown. They have to do that. There's this looming railroad strike, which would be crippling to the U.S. economy if it came to fruition. They've got to get legislation passed to avert that in the coming days. And one other thing I'll note. Um, This is under the auspices of local Congressman Smith, but the Armed Services Committee in the U.S. House has to pass a military authorization, which usually is done much earlier in the calendar year. If they don't do that for some reason by the end of this year, it would put a halt on pay raises for service members, and it could prevent the starting of new military construction and procurement paralyzing for the U.S. military. I know that you also have been tracking the January 6th prosecution efforts, and there was a major guilty verdict yesterday. Could you kind of bring us up to speed on what happened there with Stuart Rhodes? A historic verdict yesterday from a jury here in the District of Columbia. They convicted Stuart Rhodes on a Civil War era charge of seditious conspiracy, of plotting to block the peaceful transfer of power in America, a, a, a seminal moment. They also convicted four other Oath Keepers co-defendants on federal charges. No sentencing date set yet just yet. There is uh, some appeals that are likely in the meantime. But this is quite something. It's been 30 years since the Department of Justice convicted anybody of seditious conspiracy. And it gives them new leverage because they're about to go to trial with more Oath Keepers defendants and accused Proud Boys on the same charge. CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarland, so much there on your plate in just the last few weeks of the year. We appreciate you keeping us up to speed here in the other Washington. Thanks, Travis. I love you, Travis. I love you, too. And you know, the reason we started the Daily Dose of Kindness seven years ago was in honor of Tommy. So um, thank you for telling your story once again, despite how painful it is to talk about Tommy and lovely because he is such a wonderful boy. Um, But this daily dose of kindness goes out to him again today. Thanks. Yes. In his memory. In the quaint town of Norwich, England, a cozy bookshop called Book Bugs and Dragon Tales opened in 2019, just months before the pandemic struck. The owners, Dan and Leanne Frid, managed to keep the shop open for two years before they decided they needed some help. So they started crowdfunding. And then they saw someone had donated $5,000 and they were shocked. Dan and Leanne told CBS News. We checked the name and I sort of was like, Russell Ira Crowe. And Dan went, Russell Crowe? And I went, no, can't be Russell Crowe. And then we did a bit of digging and we were like, it is Russell Crowe. This is absolutely insane. They may never know why Russell Crowe chose their business, but perhaps it's because the couple used their bookshop to help the community in so many ways. We run um, something called Dorothy Amory Reader Awards, where we gift £50 worth of books to children who don't have book money, whose parents are working incredibly hard, but they just don't have spare money for books and things like that. So um, we asked for nominations from schools and they 
recommend some children who they think would benefit. And then we have a huge celebration evening here and we gift books to the children. Last year, they gave away books to 30 kids in needs. And this year, the crowdfunding will allow them to choose 50. And they're also using the money to build a wheelchair ramp to make their shop accessible to everyone. Welcome back to Cairo News Radio. And now, from the G and Ursula Show, weekdays, 9 to noon, here on Cairo News Radio, it is the one, the only, the sparkly <laughs> yeah. Ursula Royteen. I wish you Good guys morning. could see Ursula. I she know. is dripping in sparkles and her <laughs> shoes. Gee, watch out. Ursula's got the new shoes. He has rubbed off on me. I love it. So now, yeah, I, I'm all about the sparkle. Sparkle! <laughs> you survived the extreme slush out there this morning also. Yeah, so as our listeners know, I, I live in the city of Seattle, so we didn't get it too bad. I was a little bit yeah. concerned. And I asked myself last night, knowing what the weather forecast said and and knowing that, hey, we're you know heading into winter, why is it that I am still not prepared? Why don't I have that kit you <laughs> know, that's, ready to, that's ready to yank out of the closet should I have a power outage? And thank goodness I didn't have a... I, I feel for everybody who's, who doesn't have power right now. And it's just a reminder to me, and I think to all of us, if you're hearing my voice right now, it's a reminder if you don't have that emergency kit what are we waiting for yeah. i even have like a, a solar powered radio a crank radio like i will not you lose my radio signal girl. <laughs> so yeah I'm do you have it in exactly where you, you uh-huh. know that's yeah. i used to be like that i had that earthquake kit yeah you know when we were all told make sure yeah, you can three stay ways, three yeah, three, exactly three days, three exactly I think it was just the years and travis you can attest the years spent in spokane yeah. where it snows starting on thanksgiving okay, and true. until april that yeah it just becomes part of And now it's becoming normal for it to snow around here. So I just carried it over. Yeah, smart. Uh, Anyway, so if you're like me and and you're thinking that, okay, if I do lose power, I'm going to be scrambling to find the candles in the house. um, It's our that's the message right now to get it ready right now. I also want to turn and and talk to you about what's happening in New York. Oh, yeah. Uh, So this is a really interesting story. The mayor there, Eric Adams, is really making some aggressive moves here, saying that uh, city police and medics are basically going to start, you know, going through streets and subways and finding people who are mentally ill and and potentially, in some cases, involuntarily hospitalizing them, even if they're refusing care. Um, The mayor said the quote here is no more walking by or looking away that the city has a moral obligation to act. This is a big change in New York. Uh, It is. And I look at that and I I asked during our morning meeting, I said, I said, am I a horrible person that I look at this and I say, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that I think that something needs to be done. I think something similar needs to be done here. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it illustrates how in this country we have an extreme shortage, first of all, of of mental health treatment Mm -hmm. for sure and, and available Uh, mental health beds. But from what I read in New York, they say they have up to 100 that are empty right now. Um, And I'm not in favor of criminalizing mental illness or but but you see and you know that there are people who would be you know, harmful to themselves or to others who really need help, who are not going to be doing it on their own. And I know that there are family families that have uh, relatives who are living on the streets, who are mentally ill, who wish that there would be something that you could do mm-hmm. because you can't force someone. So, I mean, I see that the New York Civil Liberties Union, I'm sure the ACLU, uh, they're all going to be against it 
And but what's the solution? Yeah. What, what other options don't. do you have? I just hope that the mental health services they're receiving are upgraded and updated yes. because what we've seen in the past is, you know, you fill them with pills, make them numb and a shell of themselves, and then you solve the problem because now they're catatonic. That's what I don't want to happen, right? My hope is that, yes, you can forcibly give somebody the type of help that might turn things around for them. Yeah. I also worry about the police officers being forced to be mental health mm-hmm. folks. I mean, I, because that's whose job it's going to be, yes. unfortunately. And that's not like they don't have 39 other things going on. I mean, not that they're, they will do it because that's what police officers do. They do their jobs and then they do the jobs of everybody else as well. But I just think about that being a tough thing. Right. And I, I think if you say, well, we're not going to try it because there could be some of these yeah. issues, I think you end up you doing nothing. Do yes. Right. And so I look at that and say, I'm with you. Yeah. I applaud that there is some other potential option. Yeah. More smart conversation with <laughs> Ursula at nine o'clock, nine to noon on the G and Ursula show here on Cairo News Radio. 816 now here on Seattle's Morning News. After more than four decades fighting for sexual assault survivors, the head of King County Sexual Assault Resource Center is retiring. Cairo News Radio's Hannah Scott sat down with Mary Ellen Stone to talk about what's changed and what still needs to change. In 1979, the King County Sexual Assault Resource Center had a staff of three and a $50,000 budget. Since then, under the leadership of Chief Executive Officer Mary Ellen Stone, the nonprofit has grown to a staff of 72 and an eight and a half million dollar budget. During that time, Stone has been the driving force for change in the way sexual assault survivors are treated and viewed in the county and the state while setting the bar for the rest of the country. And Stone says much has changed over the past 40 years. We have a good system in this state. We have resources available. We know a lot about impacts of trauma and how to address that. There weren't services 40 years ago. Um, to the nearly to the degree that they are now. Back then, sexual assault was just not really recognized uh, a couple decades ago, and it was very hard to generate um, interest, uh, support, awareness. We started as King County Rape Relief and really actually led in a number of areas around prevention at that time and the importance of parents talking to their children about sexual assault. We put out some of the very um, earliest materials on that, which are still used today. As the nonprofit grew over the years, we have tended to lead as KSARC on the legal advocacy work, on the public policy, and in sort of a, a real robust system of advocacy that pairs with therapy. Because we know that um, there are some very effective tools out there and modalities to address post-traumatic stress as a, that comes that may be coming as a result of sexual assault, and they're effective. They work, and we are um, trying very hard to make sure that those services are available for anyone who needs them. Among the biggest challenges, we collectively. As a community, didn't know a lot about sexual assault, and so people's view was very much sort of the stranger out of the bushes situation. And so, I mean, part of it was sort of helping broaden our understanding of who who's been, who's a victim, um, what sexual assault really looks like and is. I mean, when we look at our stats now, I mean, they're comparable in that maybe 12% of the victims who are assaulted are assaulted by somebody who's a stranger. The rest are people who are known to the victim. That was a big shift in in helping sort of the community, including law enforcement, other professionals, figure out 
helping them shift to under, and, and sort of a better awareness of that's what this is what we're talking about. You know, so much of that speaks to where we put responsibility, the role of women in our society, um, and that and that as as females were responsible not only for our behavior but for behavior of men as well. And now. You know, in some ways, uh, in some ways, that that belief is sort of more here and more has has not changed as much as I would like to see. I mean, I I think certainly it has changed, um, and I think certainly as we see um, women in positions of of leadership in whether it's in law enforcement or medical or lawmakers or policymakers. I mean, I think that that shifts, but you know, that's a, that's a hard shift to make still. It's still there in a lot of ways. While Stowe says progress has been very significant over the years, there's still much work to do. Yeah, I think certainly as we think about um, who is charged with, with committing crimes and who isn't and, you know, really we got we get sort of um you know it's one or the other either we believe victims or we believe you know or, or we think that people who sexually assault them it really wasn't a sexual assault there's a lot of of really important conversations happening around you know juvenile justice and young people who are involved with the criminal justice system um, and the disproportionality of P of people of color in the criminal justice system. These are really, really important issues um, that that we have to be able to address. We have also got to figure out what's ha- why are people being sexually assaulted? I mean, why, we've got to be able to also respond to the needs of the victim. And it gets sort of like one or the other for us a lot of times. And so it's it's hard. We've got to be able to do both. The King County Sexual Assault Resource Center also has a role to play in the state's new comprehensive sexual health education mandated in Washington now for all students, which she calls a big victory, albeit misunderstood by many. It gets at consent. It gets at accurate information about body parts. It, it gets at, at um, helping students being able to talk about their feelings, being able to talk about consent in a way that works for them. So the conversations we have with them in terms of learning consent has to do way before any sort of sexual activity. It has to do with, you know, I, you have you have my consent to eat my lunch or to um, use my pants, pencils or, you know, come into my room, what, whatever, whatever it is. But I think we get so caught up as a community about consent is all about sexual activity certainly it's a big part of that but but if that's the only time we're working on our consent skills that's going to be a lot more difficult stone says there's also been a lot of success in dealing with the state's rape kit backlog and new trauma-informed training for police who respond to sexual assault cases but again says there's more to do she admits retiring is somewhat bittersweet but it's a logical time to hand this off to another person to um, help us move forward. I mean, we're in great shape as an organization. The issue has never been more important. And there's a sense of urgency that, you know, we need to we need to make some big changes in our community. I mean, I look at the challenges with the Seattle Police Department, for example, uh, the backlogs in the 
criminal justice system coming out of the pandemic. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, victims are often wondering, why should I bother to report? Why should I um, go through that process? And so I think the time is ripe for a new a successor to come in and move the organization forward. And she's not done quite yet. Stone's retirement will be official in 2023. Hannah Scott, Cairo News Radio. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.